I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. Here we are, post-Purim and heading into Pesach. And I wanted to deviate a little bit this morning and give a shear by another wonderful teacher. She was a teacher of mine. Um, many years ago, we really adored her and loved her. And she just started reteaching classes again to uh, some of the alumni from the seminary that I went to. Her name is Revitson Chaya Lugumski. And it's fitting that I am giving a shear um, that was brought down by her and her, uh, her words, some of them, uh, because it says in the Gemara Megillah, Rabbi Elazar said, whoever says something over in the name of the person who originally said it brings the redemption. And we get this source from actually the Megillah, Megillah's Esther, where it says, and Esther said to the king in Mordechai's name. So it's considered virtuous in Jewish practice to always say over, if you're saying something over to other people that you heard from somebody else, to say who that is that you heard it from, okay? And we learned that actually from Esther, who said over to the king in Mordechai's name. So Baruch Hashem, I listen to a lot of wonderful Torah, as I'm sure all of you do. And um, whatever really resonates with me, I love to give over to you ladies. So today this year is about the connection between Purim and Pesach, specifically through the theme of wine. So we're going to learn a little bit today about the deeper aspects of wine and what it's all about. And I hope that you're going to enjoy this year as much as I did when I first listened to it. So one of the major themes of Purim is wine. As we know, there's actually a mitzvah on Purim to drink until you don't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Now that in itself is an entire class to speak about that. And that's not really the topic today. But again, just the idea that we have a mitzvah to drink wine on Purim. Okay. So there are seven fruits of Eretz Yisrael, seven special fruits, which are called the Shivas Hamini, the seven species. Now, two of these fruits are called secret fruits, the secret fruits. Why are they called secret or sowed in Hebrew? Because they hold within themselves something that you would not expect. Okay, So the one that we are referring to today in this week's class is grapes. Grapes is one of the Shiva meaning. And of course, you can eat a lot of them and you won't get drunk. You might get a stomach ache, but you won't get drunk. But if you take those grapes and you allow them to ferment, ferment, and you add a little bit of sugar to them, then what you have produced is something that we all know well enough called wine. And wine, we know, is a very, very powerful intoxicant. It changes a person's consciousness, which is what we're going to be speaking about today. And wine can be used either for good or it can be used for bad. And when I use wine, I'm specifically talking about wine, but of course that includes all drinks, liqueurs, things that change a person's consciousness. But specifically, wine is what the Jewish people use, right, in in many, many aspects of our lives and in many mitzvot that we do. So there's an expression in the Gemara that says, Nichnas ayin, sorry, Nichnas yayin yotze sod. When the wine goes in, the secrets come out. Okay? Because the idea is, is that whoever a person really is, You know, they can appear happy on the outside in everyday life, but all of a sudden they drink some wine and they're very, very sad or they're crying. Or, you know, the opposite. Bad personality traits can come out when a person's drunk, drinking. This is the usual thing that happens to people. 
right? If you're a truly amazing person who's worked on yourself and you drink wine, and if you've ever seen somebody who's a great person inebriated, you will see that only beauty comes out from them. Beautiful meat out, beautiful sentiments, sense, you know, their sensibilities about things. You see who they really are. So when people are inebriated, the tr their true feelings come out. Now, olives, by the way, is the other secret fruit of the Shiva Haminim, because olives, too, hold within them the secret that when you press them, you get oil, and that from that oil, you get light. So hidden deep within the olive is this place of light. And of course, we know that the best way to light Shabbat candles, for example, is to use olive oil. The best way to light the menorah is to use olive oil. Now, of course, if you don't, that's fine too. But there is an idea that it is a higher level of lighting to use olive oil. Again, because the olives obviously go through a whole process and they're one of the special fruits of Israel. Kiddush is also best made on wine and grape wine. So every week we express through wine that Shabbos is the powerhouse for the whole week. We use the wine on Kiddush to express this idea. Shabbos or Shabbat is called the Makor of Bracha, the source of all blessing, right? It's like that cup that you fill up on Shabbat, that Kiddush cup, that cup at Havdalah that's overflowing. This is symbolic of the blessings that Shabbat brings. And those blessings go into the whole week. But it doesn't make any sense on a superficial level. Because what do we do on Shabbos? Shabbos is the power pack for the whole week. And we literally do nothing, right? We're supposed to do nothing. So it's counterintuitive that Shabbat would be the power pack. Just like the hiddenness of the wine in the grape and the light in the olives, Shabbat where we, is a day where we do nothing and refrain from malacha, right? From any kind of creative work, right? It's still the day that has the energy in it that, that fuels the entire week. Okay. So sod means a secret. But not the kind of secret of, I don't want to tell you this. So the secret is, is a mystical idea. It's not something I can tell you. It's something that you have to come to understand on your own. It's like Shabbos, right? A person can read all about Shabbat and how to do Shabbat and what to do on Shabbat. But if they're not actually doing it, they can't really experience Shabbat. You know, my husband works with people who want to convert to Judaism. And he once had a woman call him after reading about Shabbat and wanting to try to do it. And he, it was actually quite humorous. She called him and she said, I don't know. I had to sit in the same chair the entire Shabbat. So I would be close to the fridge and be able to open it without carrying. Because I saw, I read that you're not allowed to carry so I, I realized I can't carry anything. And so I, you know, was, was put my table next to the fridge and I would take the food out and then put it back. Anyway, the point is, is if you're trying to do something without really understanding it, it's not going to be Shabbat. The same thing with, you know, and I'm not coming down. I'm, I'm happy that people are doing whatever they're doing. But, you know, if Shabbat for you is a Friday night meal, and getting together with the family, but everybody's cell phone is still on, or they turn them off, but say, you know, wait, I just have to get this last, I just have to get this one call. You may be having a nice meal with your family and getting together, but we wouldn't call it Shabbat. Because Shabbat is something that you have to experience completely to understand its power and to understand the deep sowed of Shabbat. Friday night is magic, but only you only know this if you follow the details of how to keep Shabbat. Okay, so again, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Lamed Ches says, Nichnas yayin yotze so. When the wine goes in, 
the secret comes out. Just as an aside, you should know that there's an expression that says you can know a person by three things. Koso, uh, kiso, and kaaso. Right? Have you heard this before, Penny? Koso meaning what happens to him after he drinks. Kiso is the pocket, meaning how he spends his money, what he's like with his money. And kaaso is what he's like when he gets angry. Right? Now, somebody added a, a fourth one, one of the women in Dina Schoemaker's group. She said, don't forget the carpool, okay? Because carpool for mothers also brings out your true personality. So it's Kiso, Koso, Kaso, and carpool, okay? Just add that in. Now, what's the secret that we're talking about here? Nichnas yayin yotze sod. And the word is sod, meaning that the wine enters and out comes a secret it doesn't say secrets, it says a secret. So what's the big secret? So the Gemara is referring to the idea of the secret of the Jewish people. Because the word yayin, by the way, wine and sod both have the same numerology. They both equal 70. And 70 is an important number when we refer to the Jewish people. Because it says about Yaakov Avinu. In Parsha Shemos, that Yaakov went down to Egypt. One second here. Um, Yaakov went down to Egypt with 70 souls, with 70 souls. But very important to realize that even though in the English it says souls, the Hebrew says Shivim Nafesh, right? It should say Shivim Nefashot. The only reason in the English they put souls is they're worried somebody's going to call Art Scroll Sitter and say, you know, you've got a typo in there. But the truth is, is it should, should be translated 70 soul. And this is very important because this is the true meaning of the verse. The idea that it's saying one singular is it's teaching us that the Jewish people are one soul. They're one neshama. And each one of us is just a spark of that neshama. And this spark is hidden deeply within us in the same way that within the grape is hidden the wine. And this spark, this kedusha, this oneness, this unity of the Jewish people is only complete when we're all together. Right, it says in Parshas Kedoshim, Kedoshim Tihiyu, in the plural, you should be holy. Because the Jewish idea of holiness, one of the aspects of holiness, is that we can only reach the pinnacle of Kedusha, of holiness, when we are all together as a people, unified, keeping the Torah. That's the pinnacle of Kedusha. It's not something that we can do alone. It's not like other religions, right? That say, if you want to be holy, go live on a mountain by yourself without anybody else, right? If you want to be holy, don't get married. Be celibate. Judaism says the opposite. To reach high levels of Kedusha is to be with other people, to unite and bond with your brothers and sisters, to love them, and to realize that we are all Shivim Nefesh, we're 70 souls. We're, we're sowed from the word sowed, the secret of the Jewish people is that we're all one soul. And each one of us is just a spark again of that soul. And this is a very deep idea. Okay. Now, another thing we know about wine is that when wine goes in, physical barriers and fears dissipate. And what happens when people drink together, which is why there are so many laws about drinking with non-Jews, is what happens is we break down the barriers, right? They often give an example that, you know, you go out for a drink, let's say a business meeting, a Jewish man and a non-Jewish client or whatever, and you have a few drinks together. And I don't know if it's brought down in the Gemara or it's just a, a story, but basically it says that, you know, you do this often enough 
and you're a little drunk and you're very friendly and you're feeling very cozy before you know it, you're starting to marry off your son to his daughter and his daughter to his son. So there's rules about, you know, how we drink, who we can drink with, etc. right? One of the ways that, Ahash, that uh, Haman incited Ahasuerosh to hate the Jewish people is he said to him, you know, if you were sitting down to drink, if you drank from a glass of wine, a Jew would throw it away. They would never drink from your wine. But if a fly fell in the wine, they would be permitted to just remove the fly and continue to drink it. So this was his way of seeing, you see how separate, you see how much they don't fit in, how they don't just blend with the rest of us. So the idea though, is that we have these rules because wine, again, breaks down physical barriers and breaks down barriers between us. And that's why actually women, as much as they could have a little drink on Purim, are not supposed to get drunk, especially if they're with men. Because you can see with men, my husband went to his rabbi's house at the end of Purim and everybody was very drunk. And then being drunk creates this camaraderie where he says they're all hugging each other and kissing each other and dancing with each other. And of course, you know, that's what happens. Boundaries are broken down. In goes the wine, out comes the secret. Back to our idea, it's the secret of being a Jew because we have a great desire to be one. The Jewish people have this desire to be one because our oneness reflects the unity of Hashem. When the Jewish people are united and our barriers are broken down, and of course, it's our bodies that create this superficial reality that separates Right. When we see each other as bodies, we see each other as separate. But if we could look deeper, like the grapes that produce wine, we would understand that within our bodies, where our neshama resides, we are all connected. We are all one being. Okay. So wine has a long history. It goes back to the beginning of the Torah. We've asked this question in other classes. The Gemara asks, where do you find Haman in the Torah? So we find him in the Garden of Eden. And we see his name is there when right after Adam and Chava eat from the forbidden tree, from the forbidden fruit, as it's called. And God says, Hamin ha'etz hazeh, Hamin, the word Haman, right? Did you eat from this tree? Now, it's interesting that the Gemara has a list of what this tree might have been. Nowhere does it say it's an apple tree, by the way. Interesting. Okay, we get that tradition. Or even if it was something called a tapuach, what we call an apple today was not an apple back then. Is not what a tapuach was. Okay, but there's different... Uh, um, um, different ideas about what it was. There's one that says it was an esrog tree. There's another one that says it was a wheat tree, which of course we don't have today, but literally that loaves of bread grew on it. The idea that everything was ready-made, man did not have to work to produce bread and all of the different things you have to do, right? From planting the wheat to, to everything else that goes into uh, making bread. But one of the opinions says that it was grapes. It was a grapevine, okay? And not only did they eat from it, but they got drunk. And because of that sin, we know that death was brought into the world. Adam and Chava were supposed to live forever. Death is an aberration. All of us, whatever came after Adam and Chava, there was not supposed to be death, which is why we never get used to the idea of it. We can see people die and hear about people dying every day, but it's like, not me, not me. It's not going to happen to me. I'm not in that club, right? Because Rabbi Greider was once explained, because death is anathema to us because it wasn't meant to be part of the world until Adam and Chava ate from the tree, okay? Now listen to this. I love this idea. So it says that, of course, the Satan, the Nachash, 
tempted them to eat from the tree and they ate the grapes, which became like wine. Now that was their first mistake because of course, as we said at the beginning, wine can be used for good and it can be used for bad. And in this case, instead of using the wine for Kedusha, right? So to speak, to follow what Hashem wants and his guidelines and how to use it, these grapes brought death into the world. And by the way, ladies, that is the source for why we say l'chayim, when we drink. When Jews get together to have a drink, what do they say? They don't say, let's have a drink. Let's get drunk. They say, let's make a l'chayim. Why do we say l'chayim? Because we're saying, let this kiddush, let this wine, let this liquor, whatever it is we're drinking, let it be l'chayim velo mothers. Let it be for life and not for death. Like Adam and Chava, unfortunately, used it and brought death into the world. Let us use it for life, right? For connection, for Kedusha, for elevating it, for elevating ourselves through it. So the idea is, is that wine brought death. And wine can take you in either direction. It can either raise us higher or it can take us down. It can take us down. So look at backing at, looking back at the Megillah, we know that the Jews drank wine at Ahasuerus' party. And the truth is, is there was no issue with the wine. Some of the commentaries say they brought their own wine to the party. And the Megillah says, when it talks about this wine feast, that it was according to the law. The law meaning that it was all kosher. Okay? That the Jews were pouring each other the wine as opposed to non-Jews pouring the wine. But we know that at the same party, they were drinking the wine from the kalim of the Beit HaMikdash. They were drinking wine. Ahasuerus did this purposefully. They were drinking wine out of the vessels, the stolen vessels, the beautiful golden vessels that were taken from the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, the first temple. So not only are they enjoying this party, as we said, where Ahasuerus is every day bringing out the stolen booty from the destroyed Beis Hamikdash, but the Jews obviously have given in to a certain, you know, resignation and despair that this is the new reality. But on top of that, of course, as we said, drinking wine breaks down barriers between people. So it wasn't just that they were drinking out of these kalim, but they were drinking with the Persians and breaking down the barriers between, between them. Another sign that the Jews had lost their sense of mission we know that the word Am Kadosh also means a separate people, a nation that dwells alone. Part of our ability to do our job on this planet is to make Kiddush. In other words, to separate ourselves from the non-Jews, right? As one great rabbi said, if the Jews don't make Kiddush, then the Goyim will make Havdalah. Meaning, if you don't separate yourself, you know, um, of your own volition, you will see that the non-Jews will eventually come to make Abdallah. They will separate you through anti-Semitism. They will remind you of what your purpose is in this world. They will say, listen, you're supposed to be driving the ship. What are you doing being intoxicated? You're taking us all off course, right? They will remind us of our purpose in this world. Now, interestingly, so obviously this is not how wine should be used, either drinking from these kalim and despair and dejection or to break down barriers and forget who we are and intermarry, intermix with the non-Jewish world around us. Interestingly, Later on, after the decree is over on Purim Day, we celebrate with a Suda. But we don't call it a Suda, we call it a Mishta. A Mishta is specifically a drinking feast, right? 
We sit down, we eat, but now we have this mitzvah to get drunk. We're supposed to drink. Throughout the Megillah, the theme of drinking is prevalent throughout it, right? Haman and Achashverosh, when they sign the deal that the Jews are going to be annihilated, they have a drink. They sit, they get drunk, right? And, and, and this theme goes through the Megillah. So now we are supposed to rectify the way we use the wine at the beginning of the Megillah by sitting down and having this drinking feast on Purim. This is how we celebrate. We take the wine from Gan Eden and the wine from the Suda of Achashverosh, which were both used negatively. And now we use it in the service of Hashem at this Mishta. So we all know that we use wine for many things in Judaism, right? I grew up, my best friend was Baptist. So in their religion, you're not allowed to touch a drop of anything, of any kind of stimulant, right? Because in their religion, they say, stay far away from it. It can only be bad. But again, Judaism is a religion that says we are here to enjoy the world. And as long as we follow the instructions, we'll get the most enjoyment out of this world possible. Because the Torah is an instruction booklet that God created to give us instructions for how to live. Torah Chayim, the instructions for life. And it's a very difficult world to navigate, right? It's a maze. We go down the wrong paths over and over again and bump our heads and stub our toes and turn around and come back again. But we have an instruction book booklet that teaches us how to take the pleasures of this world and elevate ourselves and, and, and the world around us through enjoying them. So the idea is that we use wine at weddings, we use wine for Shabbos, we use wine at a brismila. The wine is always connected to the mitzvot in service of Hashem. I remember as a kid, you know, my father used to say, I guess when I was a teenager and I grew up with a lot of Gentiles and some of them weren't so wholesome, you know, I mean, and they were very into drinking. And I remember one of my friends said that when her mother would go on vacation, she would put a line on the bottles of the liquor so that her kids wouldn't you know, of course, you know, they were, they were clever enough to water it down so that the line would be right. But my father would always say, we don't, we don't have, I mean, this was the olden days. Today, I'm not sure. But he'd say, we don't have that problem because children in a Jewish home grow up drinking wine from, first of all, if you're a boy from the moment of your breasts, right? And if you're growing up in a traditional Jewish family, every week you're drinking wine and there's no taboo to it. And there's no, let's get drunk over it. It's just part of your life. I guess the way French people drink wine at every meal, right? So there's no, uh, you know, fascination with it in that way. So the point is, is we use wine as an expression of geula, of redemption. At the Mishnah on Purim, we're celebrating the fact that we were saved from annihilation, that Hashem literally redeemed us from certain death to life and meaning and purpose once again. And we, you know, understood what we're in the world for. Haman came to remind us, right? It says that when Achashverosh sealed the decree that Haman would be able to destroy us, it was more powerful than all the words of the prophets during the time before the first Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, telling the Jewish people to do tshuva, to come back to their proper path. At that moment, when Ahasuerus said, Haman, you got my total consent to annihilate these people, men, women, and children on that day, 11 months hence, right? This did more for the Jews than any, you know, words of the prophets warning them and telling them of the impending danger if they were not to return to, to Hashem and their mission in this world. Okay, so we know that this year we had two Adars, and we know that Purim always comes in the second Adar. And the reason for this is because we say that we want to join the redemption of Purim to the redemption of Pesach. Okay, so this is the connection that we want to speak about. So how do we express redemption on Pesach? We just said that on Purim, we express it through drink. 
through our mishtah, right? That we were sur survived and thrived after this period, right? Kimu v'kiblu, we reaccepted the Torah, we're told, with love, with unity. We spend the day of Purim concentrating on the unity of the Jewish people, giving each other gifts, giving money to the poor, drinking, eating together, breaking down the barriers, the superficial barriers that we allow to, you know, exist. And on Pesach, we express this redemption, of course, through the matzah, but also through drinking the four cups of wine. The four cups of wine that we drink during the Seder parallel the four expressions of Geula that are found in the Chumash, that are found in Pe Sefer Shemot, and of course in the Haggadah, which say, Vehotsesi, Vehitsalti, Vegaalti, Vilakachti. I will physically bring you out, God says to the Jewish people. I will save you. I will redeem you. And I will take you to me. And of course, each one of these four cups of Geula are all part of the stages of the Jewish people taken out of Egypt, beginning with the physical removal of the Jewish people. And then, of course, we had this slave mentality that God had to, so to speak, take us out of, which was a much longer uh, process. And of course, at the end that I'm going to take you to me, meaning that we came to Har Sinai, we became Avadim of Hashem, rather than Avadim to Paro, right? A, we became Avadim to a benevolent ruler, a compassionate ruler. We made the decision, so to speak, through a process of understanding that the only thing worth worshiping or serving in this world is Hashem who is the source of everything, the creator, the sustainer, the supervisor of everything that goes on in this world. But then there's a fifth cup. And the fifth cup is the cup of Eliyahu. Rebetzin Legumsky just mentions that the um, feminists, the Jewish feminists have decided that that's not fair and they make a coast of Miriam together with Eliyahu, which she says is totally ridiculous because it shows that they don't understand the whole reason why this is called the coast of Eliyahu. So this is a cup that it says is a cup that Eliyahu Hanavi will tell us about in the future. In other words, it's a soul. It's a secret. We don't really know what that cup means. And that's why we're not sure whether we should drink it or not. Okay. We leave it on the table. We open the door for Eliyahu Hanavi. And if you grew up like I did, my father would secretly shake the table so that we would think that Eliyahu was drinking, right? Watch the cup, my father would say. Watch the cup. Let's, you know, and we'd wonder, he'd say, well, he must be so drunk going to everybody's house all over the world, every Jewish home, and even one little sip. I don't know how he, you know, I don't know how he does it. But, you know, they, may, maybe your father had that tradition too. But the idea is that we can't drink from it. We put it on the table, only Eliyahu drinks from it, because the fifth cup is about returning to Eretz Yisrael, about our complete and total redemption, the ingathering of the exiles, and our final redemption. So we don't know if we should wait to drink it when it happens, or we should be drinking it now in anticipation of the Geula, right? Because we're so excited for the future redemption. So this is very interesting. We paskin, in other words, the halachic answer to this question of whether we should drink it or not, you say teku. Now teku is a term that people use when they're learning Gemara, and it means Tishbi, it stands for the words Tishbi, Terutz, Kashas, Ubayos, which means it's a term in the Gemara for anything that we don't know the answer to yet. 
And what it means is Tishbi, meaning Eliyahu HaTishbi. Eliyahu, who's going to come in the future, will give us the answers to all of our questions and our problems. So we puskin take you on this cup of wine. Should we drink it? Should we? Shouldn't we drink it? We don't know. I once heard too that, you know, when you find a lost object and you can't find the person whose it is, or you've lost something and you have no clue where that other sock is, right? Or that precious jewelry is that you lost. There's an idea that when Eliyahu Hanavi comes, we'll all find all the missing items that we, we couldn't find because Eliyahu will you know, uh, show us where they are and make sure they get back to everybody. So again, this is just the idea that there's certain things that we can't know or answer until Eliel comes. So we pour this wine, but we don't actually drink it. We begin the process. We ask, are we closer to the day when we can actually drink that wine? There's an idea too in the mystical writings, the Zohar says that the four cups of wine are corresponding to God's name, Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, the name that we don't say, right? Each of the cups is corresponding to those, and the fifth cup corresponds to the crown that's found on the top of the letter Yud, okay? In other words, it's deeper, it's hidden, it's higher, the wine of Purim is a connection or a prerequisite for the Geula of Pesach. Again, we needed the wine of Purim and what and the change of consciousness that it brought in order for us to be able to get to the wine of Pesach, which represents the Geula, the redemption from Egypt and becoming a nation that received the Torah. So you can use grape juice for Kiddush, but wine is preferred. And you can drink grape juice for the four cups, but it's better to use wine because wine changes your consciousness. And this is the whole idea. And the only place that we can come to a place of redemption, like in Purim, for example, the change of consciousness that happened to us in Purim was the idea that God is involved in every detail of our life. This is what they came to understand nine years after the story unfolded. And, and, and Mordechai and Esther looked back and saw that even though it seemed that Hashem was hiding, they were living in a time of Hester Pani, when God hides himself, where he's no longer doing open miracles, where he's no longer visible but rather he's peeking, as it says, through the lattice. He's still there, but it's not a window where you look at the window and you see the person. Now it's a lattice. It's much more difficult to see him. Nevertheless, the consciousness that the wine of Purim brought them to when they used it properly was the consciousness that, no, God hasn't left us. God hasn't dejected us. God is, hasn't abandoned us. God is present and with us through every single seeming coincidence of our life. And we just have to look. We have to search for him. Now he wants us to do the hard work of lifting up the veil. No pun intended of lifting up the lattice, of recognizing that even if he's hiding, his hand is outstretched and he is making things happen all the time. And this was the consciousness that the Jewish people came to have again through the wine of Purim, which now could lead them into the consciousness that we gained through the redemption of Pesach, the wine that we drink, that says not only is Hashem behind everything, every aspect of your life, the only reason you survive as a people is because God is constantly pulling the strings. He's constantly in every detail, setting things up 
so that the Jewish people will survive for eternity. And now that you have this consciousness, you can sit down at the Pesach Seder and you can drink the four cups of wine. Because what's the consciousness of the Pesach Seder? The consciousness of the Seder is returning to who we really are, to our true essence, right? Teshuva, which means return. When you have a little bit of wine and you use it properly, you get in touch with your true essence. You get in touch with the deeper sowed part of yourself, which is that you are a spark of the neshama of the Jewish people, which is one neshama of the 70 soul that went down into Egypt and then came out as this great nation marching to Mount Sinai because freedom without a purpose, freedom without a mission is hefker. It's, it's chaos. If a person doesn't recognize that they have a path and that this path is meant to elevate them and change their consciousness and return them to who they really are, then they've missed the point, right? That's the whole Seder night. We sit down and we say, I came out of Egypt. If you don't see yourself as coming out of Egypt, then you haven't fulfilled the mitzvah. We go through all of these different external and internal and verbal declarations, even before Pesach comes, cleaning out the chametz, getting rid of that part of us that lives illusion. Chametz, it represents illusion. It's puffed up. It's ego. It's illusion. Matzah is the real thing, right? Matzah is simplicity, truth. Clarity, understanding, and the wine of Pesach is a continuation of the wine of Purim, another aspect of consciousness, of realizing that I have to return to me in order to understand who I really am, the deep, the deeper part of me, right? The sowed that exists within me and it takes work just like the grapes have to go through a process and the olives have to be crushed it's a process that we go through until we can come out until we can drink that fifth cup of wine that wine of eliyahu right so on the seder night we begin the process of coming back to who we really are but it begins on Purim. Because on Purim, before we gain this consciousness, we have this fear again that Hashem has not, has taken us away from being his special nation, that we're no longer, so to speak, in his favor, that we've lost our position as the firstborn child, if you like. And we're just like everybody else. And this suffake, which we said suffake, which means this terrible doubt, which is always connected to Amalek. Amalek is doubt, right? This terrible doubt of our self-identity that they experienced before Purim, which is why they went to the Suda of Ahasuerus, which is why they experienced this downward spiral, was something that is corrected and continues to be um, purified and clarified through Seder night. Realizing again, coming back to who we are, what we are, what our purpose in this world is, returning to our true essence, return to who you are, return to what you are, right? There's so many songs written about this. Again, when the wine comes in, the truth comes out. So this is the truth that we want to return to that begins on Purim with the idea that Hashem is involved 
in every aspect of the life of the Jewish people as a nation, and therefore in the life of each one of us, who is a spark of the one neshama that is the Jewish nation in the deepest sod, in the deepest place of sod. Through to the new consciousness that we get on Pesach, through all of the preparation, again, of getting rid of the chametz, which is coming back again to the simple truth of who we are. I just want, I wasn't able to share this with you. I mean, I, it's, um, you know what, let me, let me go on a little bit more because there's so much here. Okay, so I want to relate this to the feminine, to the mother who all of us represent. Now, a mother in Jewish idea doesn't necessarily only mean a woman who has children. Women in general are called the aim because of what we give, what, what, what we give to the Jewish people that's uniquely feminine, okay? Um, for example, Esther's job in the Megillah was the job of a mother, of an aim, because she was the one who enabled her family, the Jewish people, to return to themselves. And even more, she enabled the generation from the past. She rectified the generations that came before her to return to themselves. Now, what does that mean? So this is a more mystical idea, but it's a very foundational idea in Judaism. We know that Esther did not have a father or mother. She was an orphan. She was raised by Mordechai. So the question is, how is it later on when Mordechai tells her to plead before the king? He says, if you don't do this, then you and your father's house will perish. Which father's house? Which father? So the sources say it refers to Shaul HaMelech, her great-great-grandfather. Now, Shaul had a mitzvah to destroy Amalek. He literally had a war with Amalek, a physical war, where he had a mitzvah to destroy every last one of them. Okay? What Shaul did is he did the job, except that he left the king Amalek, who was called Agag, and by the way, in the Megillah, if you look at it, Haman is called Haman Ha'agagi. Haman comes from this king Agag, the king of the Amaleks, and Shoah Melech neglects to do the job and kill Amalek. And because of that, we know we have the story of Purim. So what the deeper idea is, we can't see you. Oh, you can't see me. I don't know why. I know I'm frozen. I don't know why. Oh, well, sorry. Um, okay, so the deeper idea of this is that what Esther did when she went to the king was, the idea was that your great-great-grandfather, Shoal, is waiting for a tikkun. He never did the job. There's a repair here. You have to come to repair his mistake, Esther. You are his great-great-granddaughter. You need to finish the job. You need to finish what he didn't finish. So by destroying Haman in the Megillah, Esther does the job. And if she had, what Mordechai is telling her is if you don't do this, then there will be no rectification for your fathers, for your father and your father's house, for the root that you belong to of Shoal going back in history. We're all making up for people in our past, each one of us. You know, when we go through certain challenges and trials and errors, it's not just about our lives, but it's about a tikkun and rectification of the people who came before us, who perhaps did not do the job that they were meant to do. And we have the opportunity to either bring the process to a close or bring it further to where we're supposed to get to, to fix, to repair. So again, it's not just personal. It's not just familial. You are part of re rectifying things that did not 
reach their goal in generations before you. This is a very deep, profound, but very comforting idea when you're going through challenges and tests and difficulties in life that you do not know why. Why do you have to go through this? Why is this happening to you? Could be because of some great, great Bobby or Zadie that did not fix something and you're here to fix it. And you have to go through these unique life challenges, difficult as they may be. Your pecola is perfectly designed for you and everything that came before you all the way back to Adam and Chava. You're part of a, of a long, long chain. And every day and every step and every Nisayon as a people and individually is bringing us closer to being able to drink from that fifth cup, that cup of Eliyahu Anavi. Okay, just to understand the idea of the word aim, ima, aleph mem. We said Esther was the mother of the Megillah story. Listen to how beautiful this is. It says, who was the mother of the Pesach story? Aleph Mem. It was Aaron and Moshe. They were the ones who enabled the Jewish people to become everything that they needed to become. Because women are the enablers. Whether we're talking about males or females, they took the role of females, which is a higher role than a male, right? Women don't need as many mitzvahs because we are spiritually higher. We were created from man, not from the dirt, but from the greatest creation, man himself. We were created from man. So the idea of aim is the one who enables people to reach their potential. Aaron and Moshe were the ones in the Pesach story. Esther and Mordechai, aim, were the ones in the Megillah. And finally, in the future, we'll have Eliyahu and Mashiach, Aim, who will bring about the final redemption. And we'll all be able to sit down together in Eretz Yisrael as one people, unified, and drink the fifth coast together, knowing that we finally, finally, after this long and difficult history, been able to reach what Hashem planned and made the purpose of creation from the beginning of time. And we will have been able to do our job and rectify the wine that was drunk negatively for death. We will be able to create the wine that is drunk only for life, for life eternal, for life as it's meant to be lived, for life with clarity and simplicity and truth and the returning to ourselves in a complete and joyous way. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hold on.